Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we engineer weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Matthew LaPlante continues our chat about extreme biology. But first up, here's news of dirty hydrogen hijinks. CSIRO's Dirty Little Secret. You can't get clean hydrogen from dirty fossil fuel. It's still dirty. Hydrogen is converted by burning into heat and water, or in a fuel cell, into electricity and water. So how can it be dirty? On ABC's Q&A TV show, they had the head of Australia's Commonwealth Science and Industrial Research Organisation, CSIRO, Larry Marshall. Dr. Marshall brought a prop to show the audience where CSIRO's focus is. He lifted a large white cylinder onto the desk and explained it was an ammonia cracker that will convert ammonia into clean hydrogen. The big question that nobody on the panel asked Larry Marshall was where does he get the ammonia to make the hydrogen? I was instantly suspicious, because hydrogen as a clean burning fuel was part of the way that electric cars were killed off in the 1990s until Tesla Motors brought them back to life in 2012. All the government money for research and development went to hydrogen fuel cells for cars rather than to electric storage batteries for electric cars, and yet the production, storage and distribution needed by the hydrogen economy never happened. There are no hydrogen fuel stations in Australia, and only a handful in the entire USA. Back to the question that nobody asked Larry Marshall about CSIRO's plan to export liquid ammonia around Australia and the world to be converted into hydrogen in the CSIRO ammonia cracker, and used in fuel cells to power cars or burned in power stations, or used in fuel cells to supplement power stations. When you put hydrogen into a fuel cell, it converts the hydrogen into clean water and electricity. You could also burn hydrogen gas to make water and heat and drive an engine or a turbine. But hydrogen gas is very prone to explosions. Ammonia is toxic and corrosive and prone to evaporating at room temperature. So it will need refrigeration and protection, but at least it's not explosive. Now, you could make hydrogen by putting an electric current into water to electrolyze it into hydrogen gas and oxygen gas, carefully keeping them apart. The hydrogen becomes stored electricity. But where does that electricity come from? You could use solar or wind to make the electricity to make the clean hydrogen from water and then to convert the hydrogen into ammonia. But... That's not CSIRO's plan. 
Larry Marshall was appointed directly by the Liberal National Coalition government instead of applying for the job in the normal way. Immediately after his appointment, he sent directives to staff that contrary to the CSIRO charter, they're not there to do science for the public good, but to develop products for profit. He then fired 20% of the scientists over the next few years, including all of the climate scientists. That the Australian Bureau of Meteorology was forced to hire some of the climate scientists because they were unable to forecast the weather without their work. What's the cheapest and dirtiest way to make hydrogen? I'll let the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, explain. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Won't the Treasurer you. knows the rule on crops. It's coal. Or, for Americans... Trump digs coal. Look at that. Trump digs coal. That's true. Australia's natural gas retailer, AGL, have outlined a plan to burn coal making carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide and soot. The carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere to contribute to the climate crisis. The soot goes into the atmosphere to continue Australia's tradition of having the highest incidence of asthma in the world. The carbon monoxide in the exhaust stack is mixed with steam from lots of water, which breaks into hydrogen gas and nitrogen gas and huge amounts of carbon dioxide. Another way to make hydrogen is to use the traditional Haber-Bosch process to take fossil natural gas, methane, mixed with air and water using high temperatures and pressures to make ammonia. And lots of carbon dioxide. You release the carbon dioxide into the air for the climate crisis and then transport the toxic liquid ammonia, being careful not to let it evaporate at room temperature, and then convert at an unknown cost at the other end into hydrogen gas. Using the patented CSIRO ammonia cracker. Making ammonia from fossil methane costs about the same as making hydrogen from coal, but then you have to add the expense of converting it into hydrogen gas at the user end to know the real cost, in addition to the cost of the carbon dioxide emissions. The CSIRO claimed they will use carbon capture and storage technologies to deal with the extra carbon dioxide emissions from generating hydrogen from coal or natural gas. The problem is, there are no such technologies ready to go, and the cost of using carbon capture technologies that don't yet exist has, by necessity, been left out of their calculations. Another way to make hydrogen is to use electricity to separate water into hydrogen and oxygen. And then you use electricity to make the hydrogen into ammonia. This is only clean if the energy comes from a renewable source such as solar or wind. The CSIRO plans to use mains power from coal-fired power stations. If you want carbon dioxide neutral methane, you can make methane from farm waste, from farm waste or industrial biomass. This is mentioned in the CSIRO report, but there are no plans for CSIRO to look into that. In 2018, the South Australian government announced what they claimed was Australia's first clean hydrogen plant. When completed, the $117 million facility will produce hydrogen using a coal-fired power grid to power a 15-megawatt alkaline electrolyte electrolyzer, which will turn water into hydrogen and oxygen. 
To be genuinely clean, the electrolyzer should be powered by electricity from solar or wind, not the coal-fired power grid. The facility includes a 10 megawatt hydrogen turbine for burning hydrogen to make steam for power, and a 5 megawatt fuel cell which will provide balancing services to the local transmission grid, in direct competition with the giant Tesla battery that currently balances the grid in South Australia. Those numbers don't add up. If the electrolyzer is storing power making hydrogen to later be burned to generate 10 megawatts and to be burned and used in a fuel cell to generate 15 megawatts, then given that the conversion from water to hydrogen and from hydrogen back to water is not 100% efficient, the hydrogen power plant will consume more electricity than it produces. And what's the point of that? To confuse people about coal burning being the source of power, making the so-called clean hydrogen, the facility will also support two new solar farms feeding into a nearby microgrid, which will be used by the local aqua agriculturalists, with no connection at all to the production and consumption of hydrogen. The Australian Renewable Energy Agency and natural gas company Gemina plan to build a hydrogen production facility in Sydney's western suburbs this year. They will use energy from solar and wind power to electrolyse water into actually clean hydrogen. They don't say if they're sourcing their power from solar and wind already on the grid or whether they're building their own solar and wind power stations. They plan to insert the clean hydrogen gas into the existing natural gas pipelines at a 10% mix with natural gas. They hope this will work in people's existing gas stoves and gas heaters for a five-year trial starting in 2020. They call their plan H2GO. In their Hydrogen Roadmap report, CSIRO also suggests that hydrogen gas could replace 100% of natural gas for cooking and heating in homes. If the government legislates that all stoves and heaters, and the gas pipelines themselves, are forced to be designed to be easily converted from natural gas to hydrogen gas. I wouldn't want to live in a house with a 100% hydrogen burning stove and a 100% hydrogen burning heater. The chances of horrific accidents are huge. The Hindenburg House. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Extreme Biology. Matthew LaPlante is Assistant Professor of Journalistic Writing at Utah State University and the author of the book Superlative, The Biology of extremes. I continued our chat on Skype by asking Matthew what were his favorite stories in the book. Oh, it's so hard. It's like choosing your favorite student or your favorite. Well, students are easy. It's maybe like choosing your favorite child. But I, I will say like I had some experiences that were absolutely life affirming. 
Um, I got to run with some cheetahs at a wildlife preserve in Ethiopia. That was incredible. I did not put up a very good race. They were much faster than I am. <laughs> I, I accompanied some whale researchers off the coast of Oregon in this little tiny zodiac raft following these whales around and waiting for them to poop because whale poop is like gold from a scientific perspective that what it can tell us about the health of of the whales in our oceans is absolutely stunning and so i got i got up close and intimately personal with <laughs> quite a few whales and then hung out with some dolphin researchers off the coast of Florida who are striving to better understand dolphin intelligence. Those are a, a few of my favorite experiences, although it's, it really is hard to say which one was, was most, that I most cherish. It, it really is difficult. How did the cheetahs react to you being around them? Well, these cheetahs, unfortunately, very sadly, are have grown accustomed to humans. The cheetahs on this wildlife preserve were captured by traffickers, and then game enforcement officials were able to break up the trafficking ring and save these cheetahs' lives when they were just babies. They were on their way to the Middle East to be sold as pets. But by that time, the cheetahs had already been detached from their mothers for too long. Some of them had died. The ones that had survived were not able to survive on their own in the wild. Now, they're being rehabilitated slowly, but it's it's very likely, unfortunately, that they're too accustomed to being cared for by human beings and won't be able to be completely reintegrated into the wild without at least a little bit of help. And how fast do you think they were running? <laughs> uh, I felt like they were running very fast. They probably weren't even going half speed. A cheetah tops out at a little more than 60 miles an hour. They can move from just laying still in the savanna grass to doing that kind of speed in just seconds. They're really uh, quite impressive. But the ones I was running with or running from or <laughs> uh, were probably only doing 20 or 30 miles an hour, and still they... they uh, surpassed me quite quickly. <laughs> and what did you find with the whales and the dolphins? You know, I I was not prepared for the amount of humanization that I would ascribe to these creatures. You know, scientists are often told, you know, we, we don't want to ascribe human emotions in particular to animals because their brains operate differently than ours. And, they're, you know, they, their societies have evolved differently than ours have. So even if they have emotions, there may not be a one-to-one -one ratio in terms of what we experience and what they experience. And yet when you're around these creatures, man, you just can't help it the way that they look at you, the way that they act, the way that they respond to one another, their playfulness in particular, just left me really kind of incapable of looking at them as anything other than, and this sounds maybe cheesy, but looking at them as anything other than, you know, our siblings on this planet. And I think that's one of the big takeaways from the book, I hope, is that people recognize that, you know, in the vastness of this universe, the things that are on this planet with us, even if they have evolved in a very separate track for millions of years, 
are still so very much like us, even in the greatest extremes. And so if you can see a similarity between yourself and another creature, even when it's extremely different than you, I think it helps you appreciate it. It certainly helped me appreciate how close all life forms are on this planet to us and, and how delicate they are and how delicate we are and how we really need each other. So what sort of playfulness did you see with the dolphins? You know, dolphins are incredible. So, so the dolphin brain is an amazing thing. It has uh, its limbic system is is structured very differently than ours is. You know, ours is centralized in one part of our brain, and its limbic system spreads out through its entire brain. And so, these are very like, you know, it's very hard to know what like what's going on in any other creature's brain. But we do know that these are these are animals that have emotions that may not be the same as our emotions, but they are emotional thinking animals all you know like the emotional side and the logical sides of their brains are not at odds with with each other as as our brains often are right our brain the logical thing to do and the emotional thing to do are often very different but when in dolphins who are uh very uh apparently very conscientious thinkers or conscious thinkers i should say about things that we don't think about at all such as breathing they're conscious breathers emotion plays such a huge role in everything that they do. And and that includes just the way that they interact with each other, the way that they mimic their their human caretakers, the way that they investigate new people and new porpoises that come into and out of their lives. I just, I found it so hard to look at that. And I think, it, it, you know, people with dogs have this experience a lot where they, you know, they feel this kinship. And I found it very hard to spend any time with the dolphins whatsoever and not feel this real strong sense of kinship. What did you find were the more alien types of extremes that you encountered? You know, one of my favorite stories to tell out of this book is the story of this little mite that exists in Southern California. And scientists first described this mite more than 100 years ago. And then having described it and given it a name that was it that was all we did and you know if you live in southern california and if you look at the sidewalk pretty much anywhere in southern california you'll actually see these mites all over the place everybody knows that they're there they look at first like little flecks of dust until you look at the way they're moving and you realize they're not being blown by the wind they're moving intentionally this way and that and it wasn't until this young undergraduate researcher from a liberal arts university in Southern California kind of looked down at the sidewalk one day that these mites got any attention at all. And, and it was because he looked down and he had a question. He wanted to know how fast they were moving. And so he, he collected some of them and then he and his professor put them under a, a high-speed camera and then they basically timed how fast they were going in terms of relative body lengths. And when they did, they realized that what they had come upon was the fastest known animal in the world in terms of relative speed, right? So we often say, oh, the cheetah is the fastest animal in the world. And one by, by one measure of determining speed, that's right, a, a cheetah moves at 60 miles an hour. But a cheetah only moves, you know, like, you know, like a, in relative speed, only a few body lengths per second, right? 19, 20, 40, something like that. 
in relative terms, if they were the size of a human being, they would be moving at 1,300 miles an hour. And to put that into context, there's only a few jets in the world that have ever moved at 1,300 miles an hour. And these things are running at that. Actually, they're not running. They're actually technically they're walking because one of their legs never leaves the ground. And, and to look at them, you, you know, they're so alien. They look so different than us. But we can learn a lot about locomotion and mechanics and energy use by studying these little mites. Amazing. And what did you find with the most poisonous animals? That's another really difficult one. But what I did find is that your home country of Australia is a really dangerous place to be. <laughs> you know, a lot of the world's most poisonous snakes are in Australia. And even though they, they generally avoid human beings, they're generally in areas where human beings don't spend a lot of time. Uh, you certainly do not want to get bitten by a snake in Australia. But one of the things that I, I learned and that I, I've come to really appreciate, uh, even though I, I'm deathly afraid of snakes, is that the poisons that are inside snakes and other toxic animals are being used right now by scientists to solve all kinds of amazing biomedical challenges. And in recent years, we've had uh, investigative medicines for all kinds of diseases. And, and this is very important right now in our history relative to drug abuse, there's a lot of uh, investigative painkillers that are coming out that are being built based on original chemical designs that come from snakes and other poisonous animals that are helping us address pain in a way that is not based on the opiate model of pain drugs, which of course are highly addictive and have caused this amazing epidemic of opiate abuse and deaths, which I see every day here in my, my hometown of Salt Lake City. Now, I just found out that you've got your own podcast as well, where you talk to scientists. I do. I bring two scientists from very different fields together. And we, we like to say we lock them in a studio and force them to talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's a, you know, it all, doesn't always produce a brilliant conversation, but usually it produces one or two really interesting connections that I think might not, might escape people otherwise. One of the animals just, that just awes me, and, and I'll say this is actually an animal that I still haven't seen, and not for a lack of trying, is the largest animal in the world, the blue whale, which uh, number roughly 20 to 25,000 left in our oceans. Now, that sort of sounds like a lot, particularly when you're talking about an animal that's so big, but our ocean is so much more vast that really every blue whale left in the world, if you put them all together, would take up a space, a space of a, just a few square kilometers in the middle of the ocean. And of course, they're not all together. They're spread out all across the world. So they are still quite a challenge to research. And, and that's unfortunate because we can learn so much from an animal that has evolved to be so big. And not just big in terms of like what exists today, but these are the largest animals ever to live on the face of the planet. They're bigger than the dinosaurs ever were. And they exist in the same time in our planet's history as we exist. This infinitesimally small speck of time in the history of our planet. We just 
happened to be here at the same time as the largest animal ever. And one that, by the way, we're, we're kind of similar to, right? We're, we're large-brained creatures. We're emotional creatures. We're social creatures. We're mammals. We're warm-blooded mammals. There's a lot to be learned from this animal, and yet there's still such a mystery to us. And so there's still so much to learn. And I think my book only very much scratches the surface. And I hope it inspires people maybe just a little bit to recognize that we don't have all the answers. And the questions are really what drive great scientific discovery. Well, Matthew LaPlante, thank you very much. Oh, it's so much my pleasure. Thank you for having me on your program. That was the second and final part of my interview with Matthew LaPlante author of Superlative, The Biology of Extremes. Matthew's science podcast is called Undisciplined. I'll put a link to the podcast in the show notes. You can also hear Undisciplined on Utah Public Radio. Listen to Diffusion next week for Alison Campbell with her quantum dots. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3NBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, 2XXFM in Canberra, and my local station 2RDJ in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography, 
collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. <laughs>